those phrases like you can't teach an old dog new tricks or a leopard can't change its spots and basically neuroplasticity says that those statements aren't true. Ultimately, stress, our diet and our lifestyles are very closely linked. One of the best ways that we can break that cycle in terms of it having a negative impact on our physical and mental health is to look at our diet and really work towards trying to make things better. Welcome to today's show. It's going to be a little different to what you're used to because today I'm bringing you two world-leading experts in their field to share insights with you about probably the two most important areas of your body, the brain and the gut. I'm doing this because I know that understanding these areas better makes us better, not just in our personal lives, but in our work lives too. This is part of becoming more effective, becoming a better performer, becoming a better leader. And the two people who are going to unlock this wisdom for us are Dr. Tara Swart and Sophie Medlin. Dr. Tara is a world-leading neuroscientist and the best-selling author of The Source. She has a PhD in neuropharmacology, was a medical doctor and child psychologist, having trained at Oxford University. She's also a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan, the business school, where she teaches classes on how understanding the brain and neuroscience can lead to better business performance, something she knows a lot about, having spent much of the last decade coaching senior leaders all over the world. In short, she doesn't just understand the brain inside out, she knows how to communicate what you need to know about the brain as a busy professional to help you increase productivity, build better habits and have a bigger impact at work. Sophie Medlin is one of the UK's most respected gut experts. She is a medically trained nutrition professional, a senior lecturer at King's College, the chair for the British Dietetic Association for London and star of Channel 4's new show, Know Your Shit, which is taking up that primetime 8pm slot otherwise covered by the great British Bake Off, so it's fair to say her profile is about to explode. No need for diarrhea jokes. She is here to explain how your gut is central to the decisions you make, the way you feel, and ultimately how much energy you're able to put into the work you do to make you the best leader you can be. I know them well because I'm lucky enough to call them both colleagues. When my co-founder Joel and I first started Heights, we knew our limitations. One of which, of course, was that we didn't have the professional qualifications to make world-changing gut and brain products that we wanted. Eventually, after a lot of looking, we found Tara and Sophie. As you will have heard in a previous episode where I talk about our journey with Heights in bringing a product to market. Our first product, the Smart Supplement, took 18 months to design, test and release. But our second, the Smart Probiotic, has taken almost three years. Such is the rigour and standards that people of their calibre would only put their names to. So, Without further ado, this episode is all about how your brain and gut will lead you to better outcomes at both work and in life, today and for the long term. And the idea is to help share some of the most up-to-date leading insights from two professionals at the cutting edge of their field to help you with actionable steps that you can take forward for the rest of the year. And with that, we're ready, my fellow leaders. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. Tara, Sophie, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us both together. <laughs> okay, um, 
The point of this episode really is to educate our listeners on how learning more about the gut and the brain can improve their health and change their lives. And as most of our listeners are either running businesses, starting or scaling startups in senior leadership positions or striving to achieve more in their life, one thing they all have in common is this. They're ambitious and believe that with the right mix of inspiration, perspiration and attitude, they can accomplish great things. So the good news is you're speaking to a very specific group of people who will appreciate and understand how psychology and their mindset will lead them to greater things. What I'm hoping that you guys can bring to the table for them is more insight on how neuroscience and biology awareness can actually add to their journeys too, so they can do even more. So before we get into um, even more details, just explain quickly to me why the brain and gut play such important roles in our lives, as obvious as it sounds. So uh, Tara, why don't you go first? Why does the brain matter? So the exact demographic of people that you're talking about are basically in the knowledge industry. They're using their brain to create wealth, the product, to be creative. And also what comes with the territory is an idea that you're still very young and hungry and invincible. And so it can be very easy to take your brain for granted, but actually understanding how it works from that biological point of view and feeding it everything it needs to create the right environment for your startup to become successful can give you the edge over your competitors. Nice. Like it. And, you know, you almost touched on the idea of like knowledge workers, which I think is is pretty, pretty relevant here. Right. Sophie, tell us about the gut. Yeah, so should we pit the gut and the brain against each other as the most important <laughs> yeah. Is that what we're here for? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is more important? <laughs> so, of course, without the gut, we can't absorb any nutrition. So a, on a very basic point, our gut needs to be as healthy as it can be so that the rest of our body has the nutrients and the fuel it needs in order for it to be able to do its job properly all the time. All of our organs are doing slightly different things. And our brain is a really hungry organ. So the way that we look after our guts in order for our brains to be nourished is really, really important. Our gut also contains these billions of incredible microbes, which I'm sure we'll get really into later, which do amazing jobs in the body. So we're talking about bacteria, viruses, yeasts, all kinds of other incredible tiny little microbes that are a bit like a pharmacy for the rest of your body and and whatever's going on and whatever's going in the top end, they produce different neurotransmitters, different chemicals, different things that we need in order to have our health optimized. So they're doing incredible things like protecting us from inflammation, which really affects our brain and our concentration and our focus. They protect us in terms of our immune function, which is so important if you're doing a startup, you're obviously sick all the time because that's really difficult. And they also help us in terms of supporting our brain health, which of course, again, is such an important focus for any who's in that world and I think it's worth pointing out that Tara and I are both very much in that world of being at the top of our field and working very hard all the time and in the knowledge professions as well so we have our personal experience as well as our professional experience to share in terms of how we optimize our own brain health yeah it's all very meta (laughs) all right love it okay gut one brain nil um, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> Sorry, Tara. <laughs> um, okay, let's start with you, Tara, and look at the brain. And I think a good place to start is how to know when we aren't taking care of our brain. I've talked on the podcast before about my experiences with insomnia, which happened in part because I wasn't taking care of my brain. But what are other signs? Yeah, so it's interesting that the signs that show up that you're not looking after your brain aren't always obviously brain related. So you, you've mentioned insomnia already. There could be anxiety, there could be an inability to regulate your emotions, finding it difficult to focus or concentrate or retain information or pay attention. 
what what falls under the umbrella of brain fog is a really good way of thinking that I might not be looking after my brain. But it can because of the two-way communication between the brain and the gut, it can really also show up as gut symptoms and maybe even skin issues. So it's also intertwined your skin, your mental state, your brain's physiological state and your immune system and your gut. So it can show up in any of those ways. And what would you experience when you are looking after your brain? So like I said, when when you're not, you get used to being in this state of being a bit tired all the time and a bit irritable or, you know, in your sort of digestion not being at its best. But when you are looking after your brain, then you should usually feel refreshed when you wake up in the morning. Your ability to focus and concentrate throughout the day should be good. You wouldn't be experiencing any anxiety or memory problems or insomnia. And you'd be able to regulate your own emotions, maintain a, you know, a decent mood depending on what's going on around you and having healthy relationships with other people. So does that mean for people that might be experiencing mental health issues, that could be something relating to the brain particularly? Yeah, so there's a spectrum of what we would call mental health issues. And at the hard end of that is, um, you know, actual mental illness like depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disease. But we can all be a little bit on that spectrum. So we could be experiencing some anxiety, some symptoms of stress like insomnia, or, you know, some dips in mood that perhaps don't meet the criteria for clinical depression, but are not like how we would be if we were at our best. So the more that we can do to create the environment for our brain to function at its best, the less likely we are to experience anything on that spectrum. Before we get on to how we get the best out of our brains, I think it's important to first talk about how our brains actually work. And to do that, I want to explain a very brief history of psychology and how it relates to neuroscience. It features two key men with two very different ideas. Their names are Freud and Seligman. Sigmund Freud thought that we were stuck with the brain we were born with, and there is no changing it. So your genes determine you, you are who you are, just deal with it. This obviously didn't give people much reason to want to change and was pretty, well, negative. Eventually, that school of thought was disrupted by a man called Professor Martin Seligman. He created the now prevailing school of psychology called positive psychology. What Seligman studied was how you could literally force yourself into a better mindset and mood with daily practices, basically by intentionally repeating an action every day, we can change our mental state. What kind of things? Well, something that Seligman came up with, which has had a big impact on me personally, is highlighting the three things that went well today, which has been widely popularised as a simple gratitude practice. I read about this six years ago and have been doing it every day since, and I'm an infinitely more upbeat, positive person for it. And we don't just have anecdotal evidence like my story. It's been scientifically proven that being deliberately grateful every day can and does improve your perception of both yourself and others around you. Now, Tara, this idea that our brain can change in a way that leads us to think and behave differently has been backed up by neuroscience, hasn't it? And it's called neuroplasticity. So what is neuroplasticity and how does it layer on with psychology here in a way that we should be interested in? Great question. Um, So neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to grow and change throughout life. It's actually the fact that the brain does actively do that from zero to 25. So, you know, you've got a young child and from zero to two, as you are experiencing right now, they go from being completely vulnerable and helpless to walking, talking, 
being able to control their bladder and bowels, you know, maybe even speaking up to five languages. So it's an incredible time of growth. After that, there's another significant period in the teenage where the brain is pruned to become more sophisticated in terms of things like regulating your emotions, sexual behavior, and how to behave appropriately socially. So managing relationships. And this continues actively until about the age of 25. So as you said, you know, between Freud and Seligman, we used to think that when you physically stopped growing around the age of 18, that you were stuck with the brain that you had at that point in terms of things like IQ, creativity, personality type. Um, so not only is that not true, but from 25 to 65 and beyond, you can do things to keep your brain more plastic and flexible. And basically that's learning new things. So that could be quite formal, like learning a language or a musical instrument, but it could be, you know, I believe in, in things like traveling to places that you've never been before, meeting people who have had a really different upbringing to you, trying new recipes. So all, you know, all sorts of new learnings in your life. And if you do that quite actively up until your late thirties or early forties, you can even stave off some of the decline that occurs from the age of 70 onwards. So, you know, a whole kind of new opening in terms of how we use our brains and what we can do with it. And so how that relates to what you said about positive psychology or gratitude is that the default for our brains, and this is from ancient wiring from when we lived, you know, in the cave, is that we are two to two and a half times more likely to want to avoid loss or something bad happening to us than we are in terms of trying to get a reward or acknowledging something good happening to us. So gratitude practice helps us to be more successful in the modern world by focusing on the positives, by acknowledging our accomplishments. I'm a huge fan of gratitude lists too, but I add on another level, which is writing down the things that you've accomplished. Because again, speaking to your demographic, there's so much accomplishment, but usually that's, that goes along with like, okay, done that, what's the next thing? I'm never really saying, I did something that maybe I didn't think I could do. I pulled off something better than I you know, thought it might be. Every time you tell yourself things like that, as well as what you're grateful for, you are reinforcing in your brain that you have the resources to do the things that you need to do, even if it's super challenging. I think it's a really interesting point here because when I hear you say that, I just think, ugh, but I'm British. Um, and that that feels very American saccharine. And yet, of course, if you're a manager or a coach or a CEO, you're doing it for other people all the time in an ideal world. And so mm. you find it difficult to do for yourself. And so perhaps one of the best ways to do it is, like you've just said, you tack on a question into a habit. So, you know, I have the habit of writing down the thing. The thing for me would be to add the extra question. So it's just part of my checklist. As ridiculous as it sounds, that's hmm. like hacking the ick process for me. It's forcing me to do it every day rather than consciously having to imagine thinking something nice about myself. I mean, even doing it for other people would improve that capability in your brain. It just means you're noticing more when like something deserves praise, even if you don't necessarily do it a lot for yourself. And another tip for, for leaders of people is that in neuroplasticity, you can't undo what's already in your brain. You can only overwrite it. So if you're trying to nurture and develop your team, instead of saying it never works when you do X, you should say it hasn't worked in the past when you've done X. So please, could you try Y instead? 
So giving them actually something to do instead, rather than just pointing out what they what hasn't been working. Amazing. How actually, you know, on the subject of neuroplasticity, how can understanding the power of it improve the lives of leaders and busy professionals, do you think? So wherever you have development areas or strengths that you want to build on, just knowing that it, you know, that you can do that, like to a much bigger extent than we ever believed before is, I I just find that really, you know, huge for people. I, I find it huge for myself. And when I explain it to people who say, well, I can't change, or, you know, I'm just not good with emotions or you know I don't really know how to listen to my intuition explaining it like it's building a physical like brick wall helps people who find that really intangible to think okay I can put in the hard work and that pathway in my brain can actually change and that means that I would think and behave differently okay I mean that actually leads us to something that I think everyone cares about whether you are a leader, a CEO, or an intern, which is building better habits. So what have you found to be the best neuroscience-led practices to build great habits that actually stick? So a little bit like Sophie said, you know, we're all living this as well as talking about it. So through personal experience, I found that picking two or three micro habits, so small things, basically trying to get quick wins at the start of the year or the start of whenever you're embarking on this journey meant that by the end of the year, I had 10 to 12 new little habits that were just things I never thought about anymore that I didn't have at the start of the year. Um, So they could start with things like drink an extra glass of water, walk an extra thousand steps, go to bed half an hour earlier, but then you can build up to, you know, more things that are getting the best out of your brain, um, like regulating emotions or listening skills or accessing your intuition. But If you start with the more physical things, then that actually benefits your brain and it makes it easier for you to do the harder neuroplasticity tasks that are quite daunting if you, you know, start a new year and think by the end of this year, I'm going to be super emotionally intelligent. (laughs) Um, It's better to start with a few of those things that creates the right environment. Like Sophie said, the, you know, the best nutrition, like I sort of, you know, good quality and length of sleep. And then once those become they've become habits and it's easy, then you've shown yourself, I can try to create a habit and I've done it and it wasn't that hard. So let me step it up to the next level. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. 
This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. In general, from what you've observed, whether that is in clinical practice or as a coach, as an author studying for a book, you know, whatever, whatever your framing is, what are the things we do and don't do with regards to looking after our brains more generally, and especially, I guess, busy people? I feel like in my experience over the last 15 years, this has improved, but I became a coach during the financial crisis around 2008. And at that time, the amount of people that just were skimping on sleep, kind of, you know, fueling themselves on coffee all day, like really dehydrated, very sedentary, um, kind of like, you know, going red in the face and shouting at people and damaging relationships that I feel is less now. I, I don't know if it's the kind of people that I'm hanging out with, but I, I definitely am not seeing such extreme examples of that. But what I used to say at that time, and I really haven't had to say to anyone in the last few years, is if you had a car, would you never fill it up with petrol, never take it for a service, never clean it and expect it to work? And if the answer to those questions is no, then why do you not sleep enough, eat really bad food and, you know, not exercise and expect your brain to be working at its best? What do you do with the tricky people that say, yes, just get an Uber? You don't have to answer that seriously. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So a word that's used a lot in spirituality is manifesting. And of course, in business, where some people might actually scoff at such an idea, I like to remind people that we manifest all the time because we do business plans. We create objectives and key results and plans for where we want things to get to, which is basically the same thing. It's just that manifesting feels like the thing you do in your personal life instead. So tell us a little more about the power of manifesting the future that you want to achieve with, of course, a healthy scientific twist for some of our more sceptical listeners. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you that the, the reason that that word is a problem is because a lot of it is surrounded by saying if you just like create this fantasy vision of how you want your life to be and you sit at home and do nothing, then like universal vibrations will bring you those things. Obviously, as a cognitive scientist, I don't believe in that at all. So from a more business point of view, it's exactly as you said, it's setting goals, it's taking the actions to you know move towards those goals. And when those goals become true in real life, that's basically manifestation. So the the neuroscience uh, that underlies manifestation is is really basically aligned to neuroplasticity, which is creating new habits or taking the actions to reach certain goals. So that starts with raised awareness. And I always think that's 50% of the battle. What is the goal that you want to achieve? What is it that needs to change? And then there's focused attention, which is noticing. So I don't ask people to jump into action straight away. I want them to gather data about what's working, what's not working, 
um, you know, which actual behaviors and actions are going to lead them towards their goals and what potential thoughts, feelings, or relationship patterns might need adjusting, you know, to, to not be barriers to that. The third stage is deliberate practice, which is practicing the actions that are going to move you towards your goals. And the fourth part, it's not a, really a stage, but it's part of it, which is accountability. So, you know, having a friend or a business partner or a mentor that will, you know, is going to check up and say, okay, Dan, you set that goal for this quarter, like what's happening with that? And, and it's not even always about why haven't you achieved what you said you would. If you haven't, then it's about, you know, I in coaching always say, if not, why not? That's, that's more data. And it allows you to evolve and tweak and, you know, continue on that neuroplasticity journey. So the reason I talk about the difference between a vision board and an action board is exactly that idea that you can't just create a fantasy and do nothing. You must take action to try to make it come true. And when you do, then you feel a sense of accomplishment. And if you haven't, but something amazing happens anyway, well, great, but you know that you're not really part of that. So it doesn't really help build your confidence and your, you know, idea of what your resources are. And that is underpinned by some uh, neurological functions, which are called selective attention, selective filtering and value tagging. So because we're bombarded with so much information, the brain naturally filters out things that it doesn't think is essential to our survival. And value tagging is how your brain tags things in order of importance. And there's a logical element to that, but there's also an emotional element. And, and ideally, you would be really harnessing both of those together. So not just saying, you know, these are the goals that we have for the business, but really understanding why and like what it's going to feel like when they come true and you know, what that's going to mean in terms of individual people, teams, customers, society, purpose, those things can really, you know, drive the brain to stay motivated through times where it looks like your goals aren't, you know, maybe going to come true. And actually, yeah, I mean, just as you're talking about it, it just sounds so much like the normal work you do in business, right? As a founder, you have to do all of these things and you can't just stick a vision up there and go, cool, well, we'll check back in five years, guys, and see if it's happened. You have to, like, you know, create create all the meetings and the and the responsibilities and the outcomes and, and everything along the way. So it is just interesting. I think it comes back down again with how people um, think about and talk about work-life balance. And it's interesting because with language like work-life balance, whatever your perception of this is, like I always say, I don't believe in work-life balance. You just have life. And so you should be thinking about everything in terms of your life. And I think because a lot of especially founders will um, be so absorbed in the work that they do, it's very hard to see the boundary. And so the idea of manifesting what you want for your life becomes a secondary project thing you need to do after you've worked out what to do for your business. And actually, the more logical framing, I believe, and why I do it personally, is what do I want to do for my life? And then I start to work out where does the stuff I'm doing for Heights fit in at the moment? Where does the stuff I'm doing for Secret Leaders fit in? And, you know, all the creative projects and the things that I want to do, they have to fit in around what I'm trying to manifest for my life. Otherwise, you find yourself going off in strange directions and it's not very aligned. And that's some of the problem, I think, with this work-life balance stuff it's people not taking enough ownership on the idea that you only have one life and work is just part of it mm -hmm. totally good glad you agree i thought that was going to be your next no no wrong 
Um, okay. I want to know what your non what, what your opinion is on the non-negotiables that someone who is ambitious and wants to live a busy life full of energy and great ideas needs to prioritize. You know, you said sleep earlier, so I guess that's one one example, but what are the main ones that you think are super important? For me, they would be sleep, what you eat and the way that you eat, being hydrated enough, not being sedentary, and you know, bringing some simplicity and mindfulness into your life. The way that I speak with the kind of people that we're talking about is how long would it take you to die if you didn't do one of these things? That's the order of importance. So, you know, you can, Sophie, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you can live for like up to a month if you don't eat anything, but you could drink water. But if you don't sleep at all, you'll start to get certain memory deficits, you know, within four or five days, and then you'll start to hallucinate. And then basically, you know, sleep, it's kind of an easy one to skimp on and do like four or five hours for quite a while and get used to it. But the problem with these non-negotiables is that you get used to the feeling of not those things not being optimal. And then you feel like that's what your brain and body feels like, and that's okay. If you actually really optimize those things, that change can be quite shocking for people. And so I like to get people to experience that. And unfortunately, what tends to happen to a lot of people is that on holiday, when they can maybe experience that, because they haven't been doing it for so long, they just get sick. So, you know, they kind of go with skimping on those things. And then as soon as the body can relax all the kind of illness that they've held off comes up. So I think if you're one of those people, that's a good sign that, you know, you're not focusing on the non-negotiables. And the other one is if you naturally wake up at the weekend at the same time that you have to wake up during the week, then you're probably getting enough sleep. But if you need to lie in, if you need to nap, if you feel like you could sleep all weekend, then, you know, again, that's a sign that you're probably doing something non-optimal, let's put it that way. And what does optimizing these things actually do to the brain? What is actually happening? Again, like Sophie said, you know, that the neurotransmitters that are created from all of these things, obviously directly from nutrition, but actually the quality and quantity of the neurotransmitters is affected by things like sleep and aerobic exercise and positive, meaningful relationships and, you know, all sorts of things that you wouldn't necessarily think would have such a direct impact on the gut microbiome and therefore the brain. What are neurotransmitters? Neurotransmitters are basically chemicals that help um, neurons, cells in the brain to communicate with each other. They're called neurotransmitters, but they're, they're not just in the central nervous system. They're in the nerves that go throughout our whole body as well and, and massively in the gut. So it's, it's partly that the blood flow that's going around the brain may not be flourishing to all parts of the brain with good levels of oxytocin, you know, the, the hormone that allows us to like trust and take healthy risks and be more creative and lower our guard. And so it's partly where the blood is flowing, which, and the blood's carrying glucose and oxygen, which is the resources for our thinking. And it's also the balance of the neurotransmitters in the brain and body. When they're off balance, then we can become depressed or anxious or get insomnia or be stressed. So, you know, you can, you can still like push through and be operating, but, you know, we would know that in terms of executive functions, which are not directly related to being an executive, but are things like the ability to think flexibly, creatively, solve complex problems, override our unconscious and conscious biases, 
that our ability to do those things just isn't as good. It's interesting because obviously you, you both know my, my journey to starting Heights started with poor nutrition, ultimately, not what I expected or knew um, or had ever heard of. So how how niche and edge case do you think I am? I want both of your perspectives here, but we'll start with Tara because um, obviously you did coaching and I suppose you coached like executives and CEOs who might be doing other well-being practices first, but not optimizing their nutrition, which is certainly my personal experience. So I'm just curious, you know, is that something commonly neglected? And I guess to color it more, like it's obvious to me that sleep's important, whether I get it or not is kind of like my own um, choice and stupidity or reality or whatever the thing is. And same with water, right? I'm going to get super dehydrated, but food is food. So I can be hungry and I can eat and therefore I'm not consciously aware that I'm not doing anything good for myself because I'm full and I'm kind of fine and I might be on this diet or that diet. So, you know, how does that stuff impact your brain? Is that something you see often actually making an impact for entrepreneurs, CEOs, busy people? Yeah, absolutely. So like one of the first things I do with the people that I coach is get a food diary for a week, food and drink. Um, and I might, if they've got access to heart rate variability data, then I'll use that to look at their sleep and activity as well. But the food diary is something I would go through with them in quite big detail. And so it's, there's a few themes that I see. One is skipping meals because you're too busy. And there's a massive difference with everything with your intention for the brain. So if you do time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting intentionally, that's actually good for your brain. If you skip meals because you're busy or stressed or you don't listen to your body, that's actually really detrimental. Another thing I see is that if there's been a significant amount of alcohol use the night before, then the food choices the next day are even worse than usual. Um, and then generally, I just look at the food choices that people are making because a big thing we talk about at Heights is things that we think are healthy, like, for example, cereal bars or cereals are actually really unhealthy. And there are some of these, I'm not, <laughs> I am going to throw Joel under a bus, but, you know, there are some of these kind of drinks that you can take that are sort of meal replacement drinks. And and again, if they're advertised really well, then it sounds like a great thing to do. You're on the move, you can get all the nutrition that you need. And I look at the ingredients and I'm just like horrified. Um, so I think, yeah, helping people make better choices by understanding what nutrition is really good for your brain. And also to say that the kind of people that we work with might be focused on being very healthy or physically fit or building muscle or losing weight. But because your brain is so energy hungry, as Sophie said, it's a tiny percentage of your body weight, but it uses up 20 to 30% of what you eat. We should really be asking our executives and founders, what food choices are you making so that you can make the best decisions today so that you can you know, lead your, your business the best and you can understand where interpersonal issues are like affecting your business? What are the foods and the regularity of eating that you need to focus on for that to be at its best. And for the busy people, I'll start off with blueberries because I know that's our favorite one, but what else should people have? From the brain point of view, so hydrating foods, because you actually retain more water from hydrating foods than drinking water. So salads, um, fruits like melon, um, dark foods. So like you said, blueberries, um, purple sprouting broccoli, um, 
black beans or chickpeas instead of you know other colored ones and that's because of the anthocyanins in the skin of darker foods and then good fats so nuts seeds um eggs fish if, if you're not vegan yeah i would say from my point of view hydrating foods good fats and dark foods from the brain point of view are the things to focus on okay so if the brain is the ceo of the body Sophie, what do you think the gut microbiome is in that context? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know if I know all the right business terms, Dan. I haven't been to business school. (laughs) The COO? Yeah, well, I guess this is the starting point. Let's ask this. What's more important? If you had to pick one thing, as random as it is, because you can't survive with either, but like technically speaking, what do you reckon? What what wins, the, the gut microbiome or the brain? Well, do you know what? We can, because of medicine and it being incredible we can live without a gut not not well because we can feed people intravenously and and people survive with very little gut so although it pains me i will have to say that your brain is actually the the most essential organ (laughs) in that context actually sophie i'm gonna i'm gonna like do you a uh you know like a, a girl favor by sharing the story of the um sea slug called a bluebell tunicate that has one neuron its its brain is literally just one neuron it's the simplest organism in the world and it it kind of slugs around on the seabed and when it finds a place that it's got shelter and it can like get food through it filtered through its gills and it can reproduce it actually eats out its own brain because it doesn't need it anymore once it's moved and found a place that it can reproduce that's amazing. But for everyone else, it might be wiser to choose the brain. <laughs> I would say so, yeah. On balance. <laughs> All right. So if the brain if the brain is now the established CEO of your body, that would make, uh, I think it's fair to say, your microbiome, your gut, the COO. So our chief operating officer responsible for pretty much doing all the work that the CEO has given it anyway, sounds fair. Um, let's start with, uh, as as. I guess as simple a description as possible, hard though it is. Um, obviously, Tara covered a lot of stuff about the brain and understanding and harnessing certain aspects that lead to outsized outcomes. Can you do the impossible and unpack what we do need to know about the gut microbiome? So, firstly, when we say those words, what is the gut microbiome? When we're talking about your gut microbiome, we're talking about the trillions of different organisms that that exist in your gut. And as I said previously, they've just got so many important jobs in our body and we're learning more and more all the time about how we need to nurture them and what they need in order for them to be able to, as effectively as possible, optimise our health for us. And they're very much capable of that. I like to refer to our microbiome as a very... um, Um, sorry, I like to refer to our microbiome as a very modifiable factor in terms of our general health. And I I hope in the next few years, we'll see that as being as modifiable as something like stopping smoking, for example, optimising our microbiome might be seen as being something as life changing and health enhancing as as something like giving up smoking, for example. So I think we need to take it in, in hand in that way. And I like to encourage people to think of it as being like a pet that lives inside them that they need to take care of all the time because we need to be nurturing it and looking after it. And your gut microbiome likes to eat whole grains. It likes to eat a really good variety of plant-based foods. So whatever you're eating, your gut microbes are fermenting the leftovers essentially and in that fermentation process they produce various different chemicals important natural chemicals that do really important jobs in our body Um, and if we feed them the wrong stuff then the bad guys are fed and they produce chemicals that are not good for us that in in 
give us more inflammation, worsen our immunity, cause, and can even do things like trigger cancer and that sort of thing. But we need to feed the good guys who suppress all of those negative things and they fight for space on your bowel wall, good and bad, good and evil, fighting all the time for space on your bowel wall in order to be able to optimise your health or perhaps have a negative impact on your health. And unfortunately, in the modern environment, we do all sorts of things that that harm our microbiome accidentally and also sometimes intentionally, like drinking too much alcohol, for example, smoking, getting too stressed. All these things have an impact. We also, over the last sort of, we don't know for sure because we only recently really started studying the microbiome properly. But over the last few, let's say, let's say few decades, we've been really losing diversity of gut bacteria. There are a few strains that perhaps we've lost completely to common microbiomes within the human bodies that we study. So what we need to do is try and bring back some of those more ancient microbes back into our systems through things like fermented foods. But really importantly, diversity of plant matter is really important. And we, of course, unfortunately, add things into our food now that has a negative impact impact on our microbiomes. If you imagine preservatives are added to food to protect them from bacteria, so to prevent bacteria from growing, and we just take that a step further and wonder what that's doing to our microbiome, it seems quite obvious, although not perfectly researched to date, seems quite obvious that that's going to be having a negative impact on our microbiome. We also do things like add emulsifiers to seemingly healthy foods, particularly some of these drinks that Tara's mentioned. Those things are added in and plant milks and that sort of thing. And we think that they are disrupting the, the, the bowel wall itself. So having an impact on the structure of the bowel itself, which has a really negative impact. So ultimately, our microbiome is like this amazing, precious pet in our body that we can take care of and feed properly every day. And it can have these opportunities to optimize our health in a really positive way or negatively impact our short and long-term health in which case uh, but it's very modifiable so we can improve it and we can make a difference every day and make different choices every day to make sure it's as happy happy and healthy as possible burnout energy mindset anxiety these are all common issues for both entrepreneurs and obviously busy people alike so what does your gut actually have to do with any of that Oh, I, I mean, obviously, I think it's got everything to do with it. And one of the things to consider is that very often your gut is telling you what's going on with these things. So your gut is giving you maybe hourly updates on how you're reacting to things and how your body's responding. So some people will have potentially not a very reactive gut in general. That may not be where they uh, experience their stress. But many, many people will know that when they are particularly stressed, they maybe are burping more or they're feeling gassy and bloated, or they're having diarrhea, or when they're stressed and anxious, they're getting constipated. That's because of the direct link between our gut and our brain and how our neurotransmitters are affecting our gut function and how our gut function is therefore impacting our neurotransmitters and communicating between themselves. So we do have this constant direct information from our gut that we can respond to. Um, so that's one way that these things are connected. But as we've talked a lot about, one of the things that happens as we become busier and more stressed is that we neglect our diet. And that then has a negative impact on everything that passes through in terms of going up into our organs, into our brain and other organs in the body. And on that note, I think the a lot of the information that's pushed out about diets these days will have a, a more detrimental impact on our brain health and our gut health. So for example, busy people being heavily marketed meal replacement drinks really unhelpful, going to certainly have a negative impact on their short and long-term health. Um, and so that's something that we really need to think about. They will have preservatives in them, they will have emulsifiers in them, and they just aren't going to be feeding your microbiome the things that you need. And for that reason, you're going to be having negative impacts from them. 
we also see things like the paleo diet, the carnivore diet, other kind of diets, the OMAD diet, one meal a day. You can't get all your nutrients in one meal a day. I don't care how amazing that meal is. All of these things are, are pushed towards people who are high functioning, who are, who are considered to be um, elite in their profession. It seems to be a badge of honour to be on a very restrictive diet these days. And actually, that's going to be certainly having a negative impact on your short and long term health. Keto diets is another example of this stuff. So probiotics can be a really important part of this puzzle because, as I've mentioned previously, there is this issue with particularly important strains of probiotic bacteria just dying out and no longer existing in our colonic ecosystem, in that microbial ecosystem that we have in our colon. And we see that um, in terms of things like this noticeable rise in stress and anxiety among individuals and how we can link that back to their, we can we can map that in people's microbiomes. So we can see traits in people's microbiome that are linked with stress and anxiety, even with things like ADHD and all kinds of conditions that you might think have nothing to do with your gut health. And that means that we can... Um, use tools like probiotics and also really importantly still your diet to harness better probiotic bacteria within the gut that elicit the health benefits that we're looking for that can support you in better concentration focus and these other things that we're focusing on here but ultimately probiotic products can have these real targeted benefits and it's worth remembering that this is relatively new science and that a lot of the products on the market are really just blanket sort of they're not targeted at all they're very um what's the best word to use a lot of the products on the market have gone for a sort of scattergun approach or they've come quite early to the market and so they didn't really know what these probiotics were doing but now we're in this really great space where we can go well I want to focus on this particular thing and I can look for a probiotic product that contains those strains that I know can have that particular impact and that's a really exciting space for us to be in right now. And just to put more layman terms on it, like I'm sure people know what antibiotics are, but what actually are probiotics, literally? Like what do people mean when they say that? Yeah, so we've got lots of different words in this space that we talk about. So we've got antibiotics, as you say, Dan, that kill off good bacteria. And anyone who's in their 30s and older will have, when they were a child, have had antibiotics absolutely thrown at them. So any throat infection, I mean, I must have had them hundreds of times as a child and obviously that's going to have a negative impact on all, on my microbiome in particular but most people's as well will have had that experience so we have antibiotics that kill off bacteria we have prebiotics which is the food for good bacteria we like that to come from our diet in particular so we know that's the best way to best nourish your microbiome so we've got prebiotics that feed the good bacteria we've got the probiotics which are the good bacteria themselves so they are the live bacteria that are found in sometimes food products largely capsules um, and then we have postbiotics, which are the substances that these good bacteria produce when they are when they are fermenting food in our bowels. That is a good description. Certainly in my world, you're the queen of analogies and explaining things super simply. Can you share an analogy or a, a good story or a good version of, of describing what is actually going on inside you? Like what is like when you feed yourself probiotics or you don't, what is actually happening? One of my favourite analogies for the microbiome is that it's like an aquarium. So if you imagine that you've got an aquarium inside you and you've got an aquarium, so picturing that aquarium in your house, what you need in that aquarium is really good diversity of different species of things from microalgae that you can't even see to things like snails and other things that can keep the water clean. You want to have a nice diverse range of fish so that it looks beautiful and they're all doing different things and they're living in harmony together. And the problem that we have is that when we 
feed our bodies the wrong sorts of things the the maybe the snails don't get fed and they're not doing their job properly and so we end up having too many fish and not enough things that are cleaning up after the fish and you end up in a load of problems the water gets murky and disgusting and everything's horrible in there so we have to be make sure that we're constantly taking care of this ecosystem and feeding all the things the things that they want to eat in good diversity so that everything feels comfortable and happy and lives harmoniously together so what happens if we take something like probiotics is it's a bit like introducing a new fish into the fish tank. So we can put it in and it looks beautiful and it's doing whatever jobs it's doing in terms of nourishing that ecosystem. But it could also, for example, be really taking care of something new. So it might be a bottom feeder that picks up more dirt from the tank and looks after things properly. Or it might be something that uh, you might suddenly get, it might be a pregnant fish and then it takes over and then it becomes a really lovely new ecosystem in there. So probiotics are a bit like introducing a new species of uh, fish into your fish tank uh, that can do new jobs and different things and also make it look even more beautiful. So how does our gut microbiome actually affect our immune system, Sophie? About 70% of our immune cells reside in our gut which I don't think people realise at all. So your gut and your immune system are intrinsically linked. And the really important thing that your gut bacteria do specifically is tell your, is tell your immune system when to switch on. So how much of an immune reaction you need to have to something. But really crucially, it also tells us how when to switch it off. So when we don't need that huge, massive wave of immune reaction. And I think that that's crucial to the management and pre prevention of things like autoimmune conditions. And we see that borne out in research that we're just sort of learning about in terms of the wider context of that primarily at the moment. So we know that our immune system is, our gut bacteria is really, really important with our immune, in terms <laughs> We know that gut bacteria and the immune system are very tightly linked. They're working very hard together all of the time. So taking care of your gut health to protect you from various different conditions and viruses and everything else that comes through is really vital. Um, and I would also suggest that when we do have this experience that Tara talked about earlier, where we go on holiday and suddenly we get sick, that's probably because your gut bacteria just don't know what to do with themselves when the stress is taken away, when things are rejigging. Re and that may well have one of the, one of, that may well be one of the reasons why we do get that bug that we don't want when we finally take a break, when we finally stop for Christmas. Very, very nicely said. As a gut health expert, someone who is on national TV weekly discussing poo and the gut, not necessarily where you thought your life was going to go, but I guess all roads lead to uh, to fame around <laughs> poo and the gut. Um, what are some of the most common objections that you actually hear about probiotics and gut health in general? Well, I think that people, because we are so shy about talking about our gut health and about poo, that has an impact on people just completely neglecting our organ, the, the gut as an organ, and thinking it doesn't matter. And we talk a lot about heart health and we talk a lot about like um, lung health, for example, through COVID and all that kind of stuff. But we don't talk about gut health. We haven't until more recent times spoken about gut health. And we certainly don't talk about brain health in the way that we should. So gut health, because we're squeamish about it, because it involves talking about poo, because it involves talking about things that we find really embarrassing as a society, we generally neglect it. And people go on for years with symptoms that they could have easily resolved by seeing a dietitian, get your problem sorted and no problem, just like you experienced with your brain health, Dan. There are many things that we can do that are effective tools in dealing with gut health issues. So I think that the gut health problem with gut health in general is that people are really squeamish about it. And I run a 
thing on my Instagram page called Dear Diarrhea where people ask me questions. And a lot of those questions they should be going to their doctor about urgently, right? They're things that they've been too shy to go to the doctor about. And they're saying to me things like, well, I've got blood in my poo, what shall I do? And they need to go to the doctor about it, but they're too shy and feel too embarrassed. So they find it easier to use an anonymous type platform to ask those questions, which is really scary and really sad. So that's the first kind of barrier I think that people have in order to get them into thinking about probiotics or caring about probiotics, because at first they don't even want to think about it or talk about it because it's poo related and they're squeamish, right? And that's something that I think we need to, well, working very hard to try and break that down. People also, I think, uh, well, a lot of people, if they are interested in probiotics, may have taken a probiotic before and they'll say, oh, it didn't do anything, didn't help at all. They may even have tried two or three probiotics and they've gone, didn't help at all. And when we dig into that and I say, well, where did you get them from? They've gone to their local health food store and they've picked up one that's probably been on the shelf for six months, probably not in the right sort of capsule, probably not strains that are particularly useful, ones that are perhaps filler strains and they don't really know what they're looking for. And the market is just so... Uh, questionable has been so questionable in terms of quality because people have had a little bit of interest the public are very interested but we've had lim- the companies have had limited understanding and we're just not in that space anymore so I think people will have some people have tried them before and not had any benefits lots of people think well I can just get this from fermented foods for example there's no good quality data to show that fermented foods can have a positive uh, impact on your microbiome apart from kefir. It does not mean that they're not worth having. And of course, fermented foods can have a massive impact on your oral microbiome, on your esophageal microbiome. And those that do get through will be of benefit. But ultimately, those kinds of foods are difficult for us to access the the beneficial bacteria from because our stomach acid kills off a lot of them. So people are super sceptical with really good reason. They're quite, probiotics are quite a new thing to the market. But ultimately, where we are now in terms of knowledge and understanding about how to take care of them in capsule form, how to nurture them, how to harness their benefits, but also really importantly, how to target their benefits. I think we're in a really good space now and there are some some great probiotics coming to the market, fortunately. So one of the things that's funny to me is that Indian families love talking about poo and your bowels. And so I've never (laughs) had that issue that you two are talking about. I mean, I think as a kid, I sort of, you know, I was bridging the kind of trying to be like, fit in with my friends at school but at home especially if we went to India I mean even my like aunts and stuff would completely just talk to me about whether I'd pooed or not um I think that's become a really healthy thing for me that I'm not embarrassed about that kind of thing so one of the things I wanted to say is that depressed mice who had fecal implants from mice that weren't depressed got cured of their depression so Sophie do you want to say anything more about that I I I would say that's a way of saying you better take your probiotic now. Otherwise, you might have to have somebody's poo injected into you. <laughs> the ultimate cell. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've been learning more and more about fecal transplants, we call them, over the last few years. And that literally is someone else's, as Tara says, someone else's microbiome. You t- these days, we can put them in what we like to call crapsules because we're really funny and then take them that way. But previously it was like a slurry of someone else's poo up your bum. And we did that for the purposes of curing really awful conditions like Clostridium difficile, which is a a potentially life-threatening multi-antibiotic resistant bacteria that 
can can kill you very easily, unfortunately, especially if you're if you're vulnerable. But now fecal transplants, we're trying to understand about how they could be used in loads of other contexts in terms of autoimmune conditions and all sorts of amazing things. But yeah, as Tara says, in my studies, we have this great data that shows that if you transplant the microbiome of a depressed mouse into a happy mouse, that it can become a depressed mouse too. Kinds of other conditions, which is really incredible. And obviously there are researchers who are working that up into human level data. Um, And a lot of that data we are, you know, we're seeing it and we're, we're leaning on some of it in terms of the smart probiotic, right? Because we're looking at these strains that we know have an impact on people's mental health. And so we have used those strains so that we can try and harness some of that that early understanding that we had about the importance of the microbiome in depression and anxiety. Amazing. Okay, before we end, um, I want to know three fun facts on each area. We'll start with you, Sophie, because you're already in flow. So your your choice. Tell us your three. So. One of my favourite microbiome facts is that cell for cell, we are more bacteria than we are human and that bacteria actually outnumber us 10 to 1 in terms of cells. So that means that if you boiled down all of our body and all of our cells and we separated them out, we would end up with, we we, we are more bacteria than we are human. So in a world where we think that we are the ones that have all the executive function and everything else, actually it's those bacteria and those microbes that are doing most of the legwork in terms of managing our bodies and everything else. This is going full gut health. I don't know if anyone's ready for this, but one of the things that I think is really fascinating and one of the things that we'd never think about is that your rectum and your anus are so sensitive and so amazing. They know whether what's behind them, you can't see anything, but they know whether it's poo, whether it's gas, whether that poo is liquid, it knows what consistency it is. You can't see it, but your rectal muscles and your anal muscles are so, and nerves are so sensitive that they know all of that information. I think that's magic. I mean, that's butthole magic. <laughs> so many questions, but I'll leave you I'll leave you to it with that one next. <laughs> um, and also, who you live with has an impact on your microbiome. And I'm not saying you can catch IBS or constipation, but what we do know is that the person that you live with starts to, gen- and your bacteria and their bacteria will generally start to look a little bit more similar. So when we're born, our gut bacteria looks almost identical to our mother's. And then as we are weaned and everything else happens through our lives, things change a little bit but the person you live with will have a direct impact on your gut microbiome and so it's really important that you choose a partner who also looks after their gut health that's amazing all right tara you've got some good competition go so sophie mentioned thinking of your gut microbiome as a beautiful pet that you need to look after but there's another side to that coin which is when you get cravings that might be due to nutritional deficiencies but another uh, thing that it could be is that these bacteria and viruses and yeasts and stuff they can transform from bacteria to to um, virus or parasite or yeast. They're just trying to survive. They will do anything to survive. So they can actually create your cravings. So when I have work with people who have like serious sugar cravings or alcohol cravings, then I say to them, think of this gremlin inside your gut that is trying to survive and make, using you as an avatar to get what it needs to survive. And basically... Are you going to like override that with your brain or are you going to let a gremlin choose what you eat that's bad for you? That's one. The other one is that if you drink diet sodas, your gut bacteria actually pick up more calories from the other food that you eat to make up for that. So you're not, you know, even though let's say a cola is eight teaspoons of sugar, I would say rather have one of those as a treat every so often than regularly drink diet cola. And my final one is so different to Sophie's second one, 
I really care about my brain when I make my food choices, but I really care about my skin and my hair as well. And I know that when I'm choosing my diet from a brain first approach, that that's also contributing to my skin and hair. You know, your skin and your hair are right on the outside, so they get everything last. So if your skin and your hair are looking good, then probably your brain's getting all the things that it needs. I think about 25 to 30% of all of our reviews are about skin and nails. Okay, if you could offer just one piece of advice for listeners about how to consider their brain and gut to help listeners optimise for peak performance this year and beyond, what's it going to be? So I would say think about how many different plants you're eating in your diet and get off that fad diet that's restricting the amount of plants that are in your diet because diversity of plant matter in your diet is going to be key to your gut function, to your brain health and to your overall long-term health. What we need is really good diversity of fruits and vegetables in our diet. And we, we generally, as a, as a population, we know that people habitually buy the same ones on repeat. So it's a really good practice to just try a new one every week, pick up something new and give it a go every week. So you've got a bit more diversity in there. That's going to inevitably and, and definitely help to feed some new bacteria that you haven't been feeding for a while. And also things like herbs and spices are really great for our gut bacteria. Coffee is good for our gut bacteria. There are lots of things that are really beneficial for our gut bacteria, tea as well, uh, even some red wine in moderation. So any diversity of plant matter is really useful for our gut bacteria. So enhancing that as much as possible on your daily journey is going to help you massively. And I would say sort of following on from that and some of the other habits that we've spoken about on this episode, that you should change you should try to change 10 things by 1% rather than one thing by 10%. Sophie Medlin and Dr. Tara Swart. Thanks so much to them for coming on. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think they are incredible. And I hope that listening to them has given you a better understanding of how taking care of your brain and gut can lead to better outcomes at both work and in life today and for the long term. If this episode has left you wanting to know more, send us a question for Tara and Sophie that you want an answer to. Get in touch at hello at secretleaders.com. We love hearing from you. And if talking about supplements and probiotics has piqued your interest at all in trying one of our products, I've created an exclusive code live only for a month, SL20, which is going to give you 20% of your first month of a subscription to either the smart supplement or smart probiotic. That's at yourheights.com. And a reminder, the code is SL20. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next week.